Welcome to New Life Baptist Preaching. In this series, we will be studying the book of Malachi, where he gives a call to the people of God to return to the Lord. This book is full of hard rebuke and hopeful promise of the coming Messiah. We welcome you to subscribe and join us each Lord's Day so that you don't miss a single Sunday. Well, good morning, everyone. And happy Father's Day once again. If you could, go ahead and begin turning in your copy of God's Word to Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Um, as Vance had mentioned earlier, we've had a lot of people that have been traveling here and there and uh, had some people that have had things come up. So maybe you've missed a little bit of our study of Malachi thus far. So I wanted to begin, as I always like to begin, with the context of what it is that we're discussing and what's taking place in the surrounding passages and the greater themes that are going on of where we will be looking today. Okay, so what's the context of Malachi? Well, Malachi lived approximately 100 years uh, after the Babylonian exile. Okay, his letter is directed toward, well, the prophecy is directed toward the people of Jerusalem. In 536 BC, 536 years before Christ, the rebuilding of the temple began. Of course, this would be an exciting time, the rebuilding of the temple, post the exile. They go through the exile, they're coming back, they're rebuilding the temple, but the work was soon abandoned. And 16 years after the work of the building of the temple was abandoned, Haggai and Zechariah, the two books that we see prior to getting to Malachi, these two men were able to stir up the people of Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the temple. If you haven't read those two, I highly recommend that you do. So 536, they begin construction. The construction stops. 16 years go by without the rebuilding going on. And then once they finally listen to the prophets, these two prophets, they begin building again. And they've completed the temple four years after. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever had any project that you've built. Obviously, I don't think anybody here has built a temple but if any of you have built anything, you know the satisfying feeling that you have once it's done. Okay, You have this sense of accomplishment. You can step back and see what's been created. And if you're going to build something, you're building it for a purpose, correct? So then you get to enjoy using the building that you've created, the building that you've constructed. What you've pictured in your head is now reality, and you get to enjoy it for the reason for which you built it. So, of course, there would be excitement. The temple's been rebuilt, and things are going to go well. The people began optimistic with the temple, attempting to use it correctly, glorifying God by using it. But as we've seen already throughout the book of Malachi thus far, their excitement ends up going back into the corruption of their hearts. The excitement and the optimism that they felt following the exile obviously fell off when they stopped rebuilding the temple. But now the temple's here. Now the temple's here. There's optimism, but the corruption soon follows. So what does that tell us about God's chosen people? Well, he's prospered them. He's preserved them. He's moved them in the direction in which they should go. He's made covenants with them throughout their history, through Abraham and their fathers. But yet, even after he saves them from exile, they turn to their own wicked ways. The exile did not transform the hearts of all the men. And we read that through Malachi. We read that, we read that in chapter 1, where it was discussing the sacrifices made, the polluted sacrifices. And now we move to the polluting of covenants that their fathers had made with God. So, the overarching point for today is what does it look like when we live treacherously toward God? 
What does it look like when we live treacherously toward God? So hopefully you've had a chance to turn to Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. If you would, go ahead and stand in the honor of reading God's word. Beginning in verse 10 once again. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. God, I pray that you just be with us as a congregation this morning. I pray for every family and every individual here that you continue to grow us in sanctification. Those who are believers, God, those who are here with us today that yet not believe, I pray that you work in their hearts, that you transform them to make alive those who are spiritually dead. God, I pray for anyone who may be listening to this recording that the words spoken today uh, be able to cultivate an even deeper love for you and for your covenants and what you have for us in the way that you have made this life that you've given us. That we may be obedient to you and be able to glorify you through our actions. I pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Maybe seated. So, as I always do, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, um, but as I always do, I always like to take one term that seems to be a continual theme in the passages that we're going to be in, and then go back and look at the Webster's 1828 definition and see what that word means and how it connects to what we have here in front of us today. So one word that pops up twice uh, in these three uh, verses here is the word treacherously. Okay, So what is treachery? Well, according to the 1828 definition, treachery is a violation of allegiance or of faith and confidence. It's a violation of allegiance or faith and confidence. The man who betrays his country in any manner violates his allegiance and is guilty of of treachery. Another way to put it, this man is committing treason. So what does that have to do with what we're reading today? When we see the word treachery, I want you to be thinking about how these people are being treacherous toward God. Now, to be treasonous means that you claim to be on the side of those who which you are dealing treacherously against. You claim to be allied on this side, but yet your actions prove otherwise. Once again, it's a violation of allegiance. You continue to fly the flag that this is the side that you represent, but yet your actions are contrary to what you are saying with your mouth. Your actions are speaking louder than your words do. And this is exactly where we find ourselves in Malachi. Well, actually, all through Malachi. So... You're following along in your bulletin. The first point that we have this morning is that the people of Jerusalem are showing contempt toward the covenant. They're showing contempt toward the covenant. And I'll read verse 10 for us once again. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Well, the word treacherously is used to convey the truth that these people are living in outright rebellion against the God of their fathers. Matthew Henry put it this way. It cannot be expected that he who is false to his God should be true to his friend. It cannot be expected that he who is false to his God can be true to his friend. If you're willing to fake it before God, why would you stop there? If you're willing to fake it to your neighbor, you won't stop there either. If you're willing to fake it before your family, you won't stop there either. 
It's all about our priorities. And when we fake our faith, when we fake our fear of the Lord, we're committing treason. We're flying the flag as if we're in obedience, as if we're in allegiance, when in reality our actions prove otherwise, which is exactly what's taking place here and exactly what Malachi is calling out. They've sought to defraud God, and it doesn't stop there. They go to the temple. We read this on here in a minute, and we also have already read that in chapter 1. They go to the temple. They give their sacrifice. They check the box. They go through the motions, and then they go to God and say, Why do you not find favor in me? Why do you not find favor in me? Then they walk out of the temple, and as we read here, in every way, shape, or form possible, they deal treasonously toward one another. These are people of the seed of Abraham. These are people, when it says the covenant of our fathers, we're going to get there here in just a minute, but these are people who have promises from God generationally that were given to their fathers, passed down through each one of them, but yet they treat each other as the Gentiles treat one another. They treat them no differently. They don't hold them in high regard. They don't uphold the covenants that were placed with their fathers. They're a chosen people, but yet they look no different than the world. And I just want you to think about this this morning. How often is that the case with us today as followers of Christ? We're brothers in Christ. We're sisters in Christ. But yet, if you approach a brother who has a business, let's say he's a contractor, and you want to go through him because he is your brother, but yet he treats you no different than a Gentile would, no different than an unbeliever would, tries to scam you, tries to defraud you, the way that they interact with you. Or let's say it's on the other side of things. And you believe, well, because this person, because this contractor is a brother in Christ, I don't have to pay him as much. He should help me out here. He should give me favors in this way. That ought not be the case. We should be the most generous toward one another in our actions and in our deeds and in our doings, not to act treacherously toward one another. If you would, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. We've been studying 1 Thessalonians on Tuesday nights at our house lately. And I felt that this was appropriate for where we were. It'll make sense here in just a minute. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. And the reason why I bring this up is because... What's being discussed in this verse of Malachi is that they're dealing treacherously toward one another. Their hearts are driving their actions, and their hearts are obviously polluted because their actions are polluted, correct? So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this man in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we have also forewarned you and testified. Here's the point here. For God did not call us to uncleanliness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. When we deal treacherously, as they have done, God has called us to cleanliness, to holiness, not corruption, not contempt. And I love what it says in verse 8. Therefore, if any man rejects this, he's not rejecting the teaching of man, He's not rejecting some arbitrary rule or standard or legislation that's been created by man. When man rejects this and walks in uncleanliness and despises holiness, he does not reject man. He rejects God himself. He's rejecting God through his actions. He's not playing on the same team. And our God, obviously, 
is the perfect example of a good father. I know that a lot of people are, I know that oftentimes it's been the case throughout church history, especially modern church history, that uh, pastors like to take Father's Day as an opportunity to drum the fathers uh, and, and bludgeon them and call them out and call them down and uh, drag them through the coals. That never happens on Mother's Day, by the way. But that happens on Father's Day in a lot of congregations from the pulpit. Um, if you feel today as a father, as a man, that I'm, that I'm drumming you, understand that I'm not drumming you. If, you. if anybody in here feels drummed today, understand that maybe there's something that we need to fix. Okay? I have no desire to come up here today and intentionally try to provoke you to anger or anything like that. But if what I say makes you think something's not right, then the odds are something's not right. The odds are there's something that needs to be changed. When Malachi is speaking to these pe people, he's prophesying through as the voice of God to these people, here is your mistake. I'm not telling you that there's a mistake simply to make you angry or to let you know that there's a mistake. I'm telling you that there's an issue because you are in grave danger. I'm very glad that we're studying the book of Malachi because to be honest, it's a book that I need to know more about. And I've been really, really thankful to have been able to study this word in preparation for this because there's been things that I've looked at in myself to say, I am in error here. This is an issue. This is an issue. Whether it be selfishness, whether it be lust, whether it be anything of that nature, giving God second instead of giving Him first fruits. So I'm not here to, to do that. But I am here to say that if there's an issue, then it needs to be addressed and it needs, needs to be brought to the foot of the cross. It needs to be repented of and it needs to be corrected, which is exactly what Malachi is doing with these people here. He's called us high. He's a good father. He holds us up and sets an example for us. He's called us to cleanliness, not uncleanliness. And how does he do that? He does that through his word. The more you're in the word, the more you can see what he's called you to, that the world says these are constraints, these are arbitrary, these get in the way of what I like, and I don't want to have anything to do with them, and then they wonder, God, why have you forsaken me? It's the same thing here. Inside and outside the church, I'm going to walk in the way in which I desire. I'm not going to live as the Father has called me, I'm going to say that that's the theory of man, and I'm going to reject it, and then I'm going to wonder, why am I miserable? Why is our society more medicated than ever before? Why is mental health issues absolutely through the roof? It's because we've chased the desires. We've ran from holiness as a society, and then we wondered, God, why do you not accept what I'm doing? One more thing that I want to point out here uh, from verse 10 is that when it says that they are all brothers, they're dealing treacherously with one another and by profaning the covenant of the fathers. We're getting to the next point of what they're profaning of the covenant of their fathers. But yet when, when one person profanes the covenant, it doesn't just stay with that one person. It doesn't just stay with that one person. We could go through... And I could have everybody give examples of how someone else's sin has impacted their lives. Someone else's sin negatively impacting you. And the point that I'm making here is that our actions toward one another, understand that no action is isolated, by the way, no matter how private you think it is. But our actions reverberate through and way beyond ourselves. So when we deal treacherously in what we think are small, minute ways, I tell my students this all the time, you're always going to live downstream from yourself. You're always going to live downstream from yourself. The decisions that you and I make today will reverberate for days to come. The decisions that you make tomorrow are going to reverberate for days to come. The decisions that you and I make are going to reverberate down into generations to which we will never know them. We're dealing treacherously toward generations after us if we're not aware of the actions that we do today. 
we may say, you know, I've been baptized, I go to church, I'm a good person, therefore I'm saved. And then in our daily lives, we keep our mouth shut. We don't talk about the things of God. We don't study His Word. We don't have a desire to study His Word. We don't sing His praises. We don't praise Him. And we say, it's okay because I took my kids to church. It's okay. I took them to Sunday school. I took them to VBS. It's all going to be okay. But are you not living treacherously toward God when you know that He is not at the forefront of your mind? And you know that there are idols in your life that way surpass the place in which you've put God. Are you not living treacherously toward Him? If you can think in your mind and think, what is it that I may place before God? And something comes to mind. Understand that whatever that something is may not itself be evil, but yet the place in which you have put it is treacherous. We're dealing treasonously toward generations beyond ourselves whenever we don't put God in the place where in which He belongs. Verse 11. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. And here's what they did. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. So this treachery has been committed. An abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. And what was it? They profaned the holy institution of marriage. They profaned the holy institution of marriage. So if you're following along once again in the bulletin, point number two is contamination of the covenant. Contamination of the covenant. Before I go too far into detail as far as what that means, that they married the daughters of a foreign god, understand first and foremost that the covenant of marriage, the institution of marriage, is the institution created by God. Genesis 2. It's his institution, and it says that the woman will leave, the, the woman and the husband will leave their father and their mother, and they will cleave to one another and become one flesh. They'll be united. In a bond that cannot be broken, he creates the institution and the definition of marriage. Not the mirage by which our society says that we just have these legal parameters and then we, just, we decide and we define what marriage is. You and I do not have the power to define what marriage is. God is the institutor of it. He's the author of it. He's the perfecter of it. And by doing so, think about it. If you are the author of something, the creator of something, the perfecter of something, you're going to love it. You poured in the time. You know it better than anybody else. If I was to write something, and I invested a lot of time into it, and then someone else came up and read it and used their critical theory mind and said, I don't know, I'm not going to go too far into that, but critical theory is basically, here's what they said, but what they actually meant is what they didn't say. Okay? Being critical, not thinking, obviously, but being critical. Okay? They said this, but since they didn't say that, that's what they actually meant. If I invested a lot of time in writing something to you, or writing something in mass, and then somebody read it and said, but what he actually meant was this, and they completely twisted that which was what was my intention, would I be happy with that analysis? Would I be happy with what they had done to what I had created, what I had written, what I had been very clear about? No. No. We read in chapter 1, you bring polluted offerings, and yet they wonder, why are you not happy with me? They walk into the temple knowing that they have married the daughters who worship foreign gods. They've split their allegiance. They've disobeyed his commandments. They've disobeyed what he has said to their fathers. They walk into the temple and they wonder, why are you angry with me? Knowing completely clear what they're doing. So, we have, we, by we I mean me, more, more or less. Uh, maybe, I know that we've had some pool issues in the church. We talked about that last Sunday night, okay? Well, I'm glad to report that our pool is finally blue, relatively clear, but definitely able to be swam in, okay? 
So if you have a pool, you know that a pool is always a fight. All right? When it's good, it's good. When it's bad, it's awful. And, and it just you can't stop thinking about it. You can't rush the process. You just have to go through the steps. And, but then once you get the pool clean, the last thing you want to see is your three-year-old throw dirt in it. Right? And Boone never does anything like that until he does. Okay? But when the pool's clean, things are great. But the contamination, when you see that there is contamination, you have to act. You have to do something. The dumbest thing that you could do is just say, hey, that's contaminated. Well, see you later. And then just go on as if nothing is a problem or as if it's all going to be fine. You know, I don't have to put any chemical in, nothing like that. It's blue right now, and I'm just going to expect it to continually be blue. Does it stay blue? It doesn't stay blue, especially whenever somebody is polluting the pool that you've sought to keep clean, correct? These are God's covenant people, guys. This is a pool that he has laid out step by step the process by which to keep it clean, but yet they pollute it. And we do the same. They pollute it. It's not enough to say it's polluted. That's not enough, is it? It's not enough to look at a dead and a dying world and a culture that the church is attempting to emulate and say it's bad. It's a bad culture. Good start. Now what are you going to do? Now what are you going to do? You've recognized that there's an issue, but now the issue must be addressed. The issue must be addressed. Is the issue addressed purely because you hate the contamination? You love the purity when the contamination is gone. It's so much more useful when it's pure. It's fitting the purpose that it was created for when it's pure. So what's the solution? To recognize that it's contaminated and continue to pour in more water on top of contamination? No. You recognize that it's there and you remove the contamination. And you may be thinking that what I'm saying is Declare war on our society. Declare war on our, soul, on our culture to extract the contamination. All I'm asking of us is to begin here. Begin here. So that we can remove the law from our eye. And then we can go and we have this culture that our society sees is different. It's different. You're not like us. What is it about you that makes you so hopeful? What is it about you that makes you so joyful? Why do your kids love you? Why do you love your spouse like that? Why do you not laugh at the same jokes that we laugh at? Why do you not engage in the same conversations? Why is it that you are content? If we look no different than the world, why in the world would they want to be and have and possess what God has given us? They wouldn't want it. And I don't blame them because they already have that. So once again, <clears throat> they've married the daughters of a foreign God. Now, um, Understand that the issue here is not so much that they're marrying the daughters of a foreign man, but rather that they're marrying the daughters of a foreign god, which is the placement of their allegiance. And the reason why I bring that up is because um, uh, we just, I don't even know how long ago it was. I'm really bad at remembering when things were. Uh, but we studied the book of Ruth on Tuesday nights at our house, and we spent a lot of time just focusing on the book of Ruth. And if you know much about uh, Ruth and Boaz and Naomi and all of them, um, you know that Ruth was a Moabite, okay? Uh, Naomi and her husband and her three sons had moved uh, to, or her two sons, had moved to Moab, being disobedient to God, who had said, don't move to Moab. They moved to Moab. 
Um, so she's a Moabite. Naomi's sons marry Moabite women. Her sons die. Her husband dies. She's going to move back to her home. And she tells both of her daughter-in-laws, stay here. Don't go with me. I don't have an opportunity to bear more sons in my womb. And even if I did, are you really going to wait around that long? Why would you chase me back to my place? Why would you go with me? I have nothing to offer you. I've lost everything. And she calls herself Mara because she's bitter. She's unrecognizable at this point. And she's going to go back. And Ruth says to Naomi, Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She knows and recognizes what Naomi doesn't see. Naomi says to her, go back to your parents and your gods. Go back to your pagan unbelief. And Ruth, who has been around this family, knows there's nothing for me here. And she follows Naomi back. And she rejects what she had grown up in. She rejects all of these gods, all of these false idols, and says that your God will be my God. So understand the issue here is not solely that they are the daughters of foreign men, but yet that they are the daughters of foreign gods, saying that that's their allegiance. That's their allegiance. Not an allegiance to the one holy God, but an allegiance to the idols that they can fashion with their hands. So let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 4 through 8. Let's see what God's Word has to say about this before it ever even gets to this point. Because obviously Malachi is making the point that they know better. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 4 through 8. Here's a warning to the chosen people. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. Hmm. Sounds like we don't need to mess around with this. Verse 6. For you are a holy people of the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord did not send his love on you, nor choose you because you are more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, referring right back to what Malachi has said, he has kept his end of the deal. He has kept with his covenant. He swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, warning them, don't intermarry because their allegiance is not with you. Their allegiance is with their gods. Destroy the idols, tear down the sacred pillars, have nothing to do with this. And yet, what do we see by the time we get to Malachi? What do we see at this time period? But they have thrown that to the side. And I don't want you to think that maybe maybe it's possible that they just overlooked Deuteronomy chapter 7. You know, maybe it's just one of those marginal passages that they overlooked. Guys, we studied the Shema prayer here. The Shema prayer was important. The Shema prayer was what they would repeat every day. Uh, that whenever you rise and as you lie down and as you go along the way, that you have one holy and perfect God that you need to be thinking about him, tie him to your wrist, to the forefronts of your mind, that he be on your mind and on your wrist in action. That's chapter 6. That's one chapter before being told, don't intermarry with them. Their allegiance will not be with me. Their allegiance will be with their gods. And you're polluting the pool. And what do we see immediately before that in chapter 5? The retelling of the Ten Commandments. You have the Ten Commandments, the Shema, and then you have this section in chapter 7. It's not a small thing. It's not a trivial thing. It's not something that's tertiary. That you just do whatever you want to, God's giving you a lot of wiggle room. You see the fruit of what they've done here by disobeying this. 
And if we're honest, do we not see it in our own lives maybe, in our own families, in our own society, when you have someone who is a believer and knowingly yokes themselves with an unbeliever? Knowingly yokes themselves with an unbeliever. Prior to coming to New Life, I was engaged in youth ministry. And man, was it a shocker how many times I would hear young people say that they're dating someone to witness to them. They're dating this person, hoping that by dating them, they will follow the Lord. The vast majority of the time, it was young ladies saying, I'm dating him with hopes that he will follow God. And I remember hearing prior to even being in that role, Alistair Begg say one time, if your desire is to see a young man, as a, as a young woman, if your desire is to see a young man follow Christ, send your brother to evangelize to him. Send your brother. Does he reject your brother, but yet you speak and he just falls all over himself? It's not about the Lord, it's about you. Send your brother and see what he does. Why would we play with fire in this way? And I know in a room with this many people that there are some of us who may have been unbelievers and our spouse unbelievers and we were married and then now the Lord through the working of the Holy Spirit has saved both of you. Maybe he saved one of you. But what grievance and sorrow do you bear being a believer and then neglecting what God says and disobeying and knowingly, intentionally becoming unequally yoked. You're not, you're not serving the same God. And what impact does that have? It impacts everything. How will you raise your children if you're pulling them in two different directions? We see this all the time. I feel like I hear this often of the husband thinks this way, the wife thinks this way, and the kids are caught in the middle and they just get to choose. How can you catechize from just, you know what, just whatever you decide is good. How can you raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord if you just say, whatever you want, whatever you want is fine. And maybe when you had children in your home, you didn't know that. Forgive yourself. Give yourself grace. And now decide what will we do moving forward. Now what will we do? Not look at what we didn't do, but now what will we do? It's so important. I, I put in this quote from Francis Schaeffer that I think is fitting to this. People drift from generation to generation and the morally unthinkable becomes thinkable as the years move on. It's so true. Tuesday night, or actually we moved it to Thursday night last week at Bible study when we were discussing 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I was... The majority of the people that we have with us are like between 18 and 25, okay? And I was discussing how I was born in 1991, okay? So I was five in 96. Hank is five in 2023. Is Hank growing up in the same world that I grew up in when I was five? He's not. He's not growing up in the same world, okay? Madison, who we've known for years, who's part of our group, um, is, and if she's listening, I think that she said 20, She's 20, okay? So she's 20, and she's 20 in 2023. I would have been 20 in 2014, I think, something like that. I can't remember right now. No, I would have been 20 then. I'm way off. 2020, no, 2011. Obviously, I'm not a math teacher, okay? <laughs> but the world that I was living in when I was 20 in 2011 is not the world that she's living in at 20 in 2023, is it not? It just snowballs. So whenever I start to think about my own children and I think, okay, well, I'm 31. What's the world going to be like whenever Boone is 31? What's the world going to be like when Hattie's 31 or when Hank is 31? It could be way worse. Could be better. Could be better. Does, Lord, does the Lord not transform things and move things based on the obedience of his people? Who's to say that the church will not be strengthened? Obviously, he said that he would do this generationally by faithfulness. 
So we can look and see the unfaithfulness and how it snowballs and it compounds and it goes bigger and bigger and bigger. And what's going to be the solution for that? Are we going to be in a way better spot 20 years from now by the church just saying, you know what? We really want the world to like us. We really want society to like us. So we're going to go ahead and say that it's fine. We're going to go ahead and appease the world because we don't want to be on the quote unquote wrong side of history. And we're going to go along with what the world is saying. And what would happen in 20 years from now if we do that? Would we look back and say that we were right or we were wrong? We would say that we were wrong. But yet many people would see and say, God, why are you not satisfied with us? Why are you not satisfied with us? We've tried to make the world love us. They do love us. Why are you not satisfied with us? Rather than worrying about that and thinking about that 20 years from now, maybe we should stop and think, about each one of us and as a church and think what would be the reasons why he would not be satisfied with us? What are the reasons why he would not be satisfied with us? Think about those reasons and then correct them. The foolish man recognizes that there's an issue and then continues in his ways. We don't want to be cut off from the covenant, which is our third point here. Verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does, who does this being what? Being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. He says, may the Lord cut off the man who does all of these things. Not just the man who does these things, but the man who does these things being fully awake and fully aware. He's on guard. He is cognizant of what's going on. and He's fully aware of the disobedience that he is committing. But yet, what does he do? Yet, brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Being aware of our treason makes a person all the more guilty and all the more treasonous. Have you ever maybe been treasonous in one way, but really didn't realize that that was what was going on at the time? Have you ever been played by somebody else to pit you against someone else? And you honestly, legitimately had no idea that that was taking place. You can be fooled for a season. We're only human. I've been fooled for a season once a bunch of times. I'm sure of it. I'm sure there's times whenever I've been played and I've been fooled that I'm not even aware of because they did such a darn good job. There's a difference in that and being fully aware of what you're doing and then saying it doesn't matter Surely I can please God. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. I claim Him. I say that He is Lord, but yet I have so many idols in my life that I've placed before Him. Whether it be wealth, whether it be prestige, whether it be uh, credentials, whether it be diplomas and degrees, whatever it is, to make a little bit more money, to have a little bit more glory, to have more men say that they like what I have to say, whatever it is. The next item that you're placing before your obedience to what God has called you to is an idol of disobedience. And then we say to him, why are you not satisfied with me? And why are you not blessing me in this way? Why do I feel distant from him? Because we are. Because you may be. It's no surprise that chapter 1 is about polluted offerings. They polluted them before they even got there. Let's say they bring the perfect offering, not the sick one, not the lame one, not the one that's described in chapter 1, but they bring the perfect offering, but yet even though they brought the perfect offering, they've lived their whole rest of their time in rebellion to God, and they think that they will appease Him with simply what they brought at this moment. You can have all the wealth in the world and donate it to all the great causes, donate it to the kingdom, but yet if your life is nothing but rot, are you controlling your own vessel? No. I, if you get bored sometime, do a study on when the word vessel is used throughout Scripture. It's awesome. It will really make you think about yourself. We just read that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Knowing how to control your own vessel through sanctification. Sanctification being the cleansing, the washing, the made more into the image of God, being more Christ-like over time. Does anybody ever come to completion in the growth of sanctification? No. No. There's always more 
that needs to be done to conform us into the image of God, to conform us to be more like His Son, Jesus Christ. But if we're controlling our own vessel, we are aware of what's taking place on the inside. The man who does all of these things that Malachi is saying here, marrying the daughters of foreign gods, disobeying God's word, disobeying His commands, bringing polluted offerings, all of this stuff. And understand, guys, it's not just the common folk. It's top down. They've cleaned the outside, but yet the inside is full of rot and filth and disgust. May we be a people who not be walking in such a way. So, as I just alluded to, um, I said earlier, we all live downstream from ourselves. And if you don't know what that means, you can ask me later. Okay? But we also live downstream from our own society, and our society likes to emulate classes that are above ourselves. It's just a natural, normal thing. We see this throughout history. I may have used this example here from the pulpit before. I'm not sure. Uh, humor me if, my, if I have. Maybe you've heard me say this in the past. But um, in the Victorian era, they would people, common folk, would try to emulate the upper tiers of their society. Okay, So if the upper tiers of society would change their clothes often throughout the day, depending on what it was they were going to be doing, how they would have their meals, they'd have their tea time, they'd do all these things, they had all these rules and customs, and even if you were lower on the totem pole of society, you would still attempt to carry yourself well, have tea, work hard in your occupation, present, make yourself presentable, all of these things, because this is what they were doing at the top, and no matter where you were, you strove to emulate that which was above you. The church, often the victim of trying to emulate society, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that society is working to emulate? We're not living in the, Victor in the Victorian era where you carry yourself well, where you're chivalrous, where you have manners, where you have these customs. No, I work in a high school, and what do I see that seems to be the trend? I've taught for nine years. I don't know how that's possible already, but it's, it's happening. I've already taught for nine years, and I can tell you that the kids today are not what they were nine years ago. And I'm not putting the blame solely on the kids. I'm putting it on parents as well. And also, I'm putting it on the church where they have kids who are part of their congregations, but yet look absolutely zero different from their peers. No different from their peers. And yet parents say, well, they're just, kids are going to be kids. Kids are going to be kids. Or the church just doesn't want to upset them because they don't want to be too judgy. That's the last thing you want to be in our society. You can't be too judgy. You can't hold people to a standard. How terrible of you. No standard. That's what's best. So what do they emulate? They emulate social media. They emulate TikTok. They emulate Instagram. They compare themselves to that rather than comparing themselves to Christ. They don't seek to grow in holiness. They seek to fit in more and more and more and more and more. And maybe it's in your own family. Maybe it's your granddaughter. Maybe it's your grandson or your son or whoever. And even if they reach the apex of having whatever it is that they're seeking to have by emulating the world, they may have the outside all cleaned up, but the inside, more than likely, is going to be full of rot. And have they made God their God or have they made their God the foreign gods? Have they made their God the idol of favorability among their peers? Being liked. All of these things. So I'll leave you with this. Do churches, do families, do individuals really thrive when we seek to emulate the world and live treacherously toward God? Do we really positively impact the next generation when our desire is to fit in and keep up with the Jones and be on the next travel ball team? For our kid to be the MVP. For our kid to get the scholarship. For our kid to get whatever it is that may not be inherently bad, but yet that's the idol, that's the foreign God that we've placed before them and before ourselves. So what do we do? We set the example in our marriage, 
We set the example in our home. We set the example for ourselves in the workplace as we rise up, as we lie down, as we go along the way. And we ask ourselves, am I being treasonous toward God? Or am I seeking diligently to walk in obedience with Him? There's so much more that could be said about the marriage side of things, but I don't want to get too far into next week. But I hope that, uh, that what's been spoken here, that, that we really do take the time today to ask ourselves, what needs to change? How do we need to purge ourselves from contamination? And understand that we cannot purge ourselves on our own. It would be the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Lord. Let us pray. God, I thank you for everyone in this room this morning. I thank you most of all for your word that is so clear as to how it is that you would want us to live. Your standard is not up in the air. Your standard is not confusing. Your standard is clearly stated, but yet we fail, we blunder, and sometimes, Lord, we outwardly reject what you have said to us, and then we wonder, why am I struggling? Why am I not being blessed in this way? God, I pray that you purge us of uncleanness. I pray that we be a people repentant of our sins, a people that dive into your word, that we can know what it is that you have for us, that we don't have to guess, that we don't have to wonder, that we don't have to take what someone said on TV, holding a Bible says that we're supposed to be, but that we are in your word diligently knowing what you have for us. God, I thank you for the fathers who have stepped up to the plate. God, I pray for those who today would be grieving because of either the loss of a father or uh, no relationship with their father, um, that they may realize that they have you, that they have a perfect father, a perfect example, who has more love than any earthly father could ever give. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at New Life Preaching Podcast. We welcome you to return each Lord's Day as we study the book of Malachi and the call to return to the Lord.